I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Mike Evans. Mike made his name as the founder of Grubhub, which we've all heard of and probably used, founded in 2004, IPO'd in 2014. And he left Grubhub, thought about the meaning of life bicycling across America, and then started another company called Fixer.com, a handyman business, but focused on social impact. We'll be hearing about that. He's just about to publish November the 1st from Legacy Literature, a book called Hangry, combination of the words hungry and angry, I guess, a startup's journey. So congratulations on the on the book, Mike, which I understand is also available right now in audible form in case people don't have time to read the book. And uh, thanks for joining me. All right. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I guess this is a little different from the typical sort of strategy and organization books we deal with on the on the show, Mike. Instead, it seems to be more of a memoir about your journey in founding and IPO in Grubhub and your thoughts and learnings from that process. What were you trying to message, get across with telling the story? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that I tried to do a little bit differently in the book is present the experience of starting something from nothing and the, the sort of what it's like to go through that in, in a non-sugar-coated way, right? I try to be very real about the challenges and the difficulty associated with it because, you know, a lot of times when I read business books, especially resource-oriented ones, you know, they're presented as, we figured this thing out about business and it's always true and no other theory is true. And this is, it's presented as a sort of perfect piece of, of advice, but that's not the way it goes. Right. So you're trying to show the experience warts and all and what you understood, what you didn't understand and so on, the, the messy real experience. That's right. I'm trying to show the, the whole experience and then take that and what sort of meaningful sort of impressions or insights can you derive from sort of seeing the experience and how it can relate to what we're all going through. And the whole goal of the book, the reason I wrote it is businesses are huge levers for change in the environments and communities that they work in. And so being intentional about that change is really important. So if I can change 10 people's minds about that, then the book will be a success. So indeed, as you touched on just now, one, one of the key ideas in the book, it seemed to me, was the art of starting with nothing and ending up with a business model that makes sense. And so you described for Grubhub how you went from seeing a need to coding the model to changing to a, a fee-based service rather than a subscription service and figuring out how to expand and so on. If you figured out some sort of methodology there, what would you say are the key outlines of that methodology from going from nothing to something? Yeah, I, I think sort of in its most simplistic form, you know, the difference between a hobby and a business is making $0 or making $1, right? And the difference between a business and a great business is getting a second dollar from a, a customer who paid you a first dollar already and getting, getting a product that's good enough or a value proposition that's good enough. They actually are creating repeat purchase. But even when talking about the book and even talking about the sort of highlight reel of the moments in the book, it sounds like a straight path, but it's a little bit more like a drunken ramble. Like it's actually, success doesn't come because you're like, oh, I did A and then B and then C and then D. But instead there's A.2, which was an experiment, which didn't really work. And so there's a piece of this, which is the nature of innovation, where you have to think about where you're headed and what you're trying to accomplish. But be willing to make mistakes and to fail at certain sub steps along the way. And so that's part of what's explored in the, in the book is the, is the importance of both working hard towards a goal and then quitting something if it doesn't work, because that really opens a person up for experimentation, which is absolutely necessary to innovate, to create something from nothing. 
So you had this sequence of decisions where you zigzagged towards a model that worked for Grubhub. What were some of the key decisions, some of the key things that did work? And what are some of your reflections on why that worked? If there's something you learned from the process that you could, you know, share with other entrepreneurs, what would that be? Yeah, I think um, this is really counter to the current trend of things. But when we moved, I started with a subscription-based product where I was at charging restaurants for exposure on a neighborhood delivery guide. And then I moved from that to a transactional model, which is the exact opposite way every business wants to go these days. But the reason was that the subscription model is, is sort of like a broken clock. It's, it's right twice a day, wrong the rest of the time. And so for almost every customer, the subscription model either overcharged relative to the value that they were getting or under, undercharged relative to the value that they were receiving. Whereas a, a per order model exactly matched the value that the customer was getting to the revenue I was generating from them. So it aligned our interests really well. So that was one step that made a big difference. And then there were others as well, you know, moving from a phone-based ordering system, literally the first thing I did, and this was a terrible idea. I created a phone-based system where restaurant customers could call a restaurant. We would be able, they call a special number we had, it would then forward onto the restaurants and we record the call and we could prove how many orders the restaurants were getting. But I was moving customers from a digital channel to a phone-based channel instead of just letting them order online. And it was a little early for online ordering. I started in 2002. People were still uncomfortable putting their credit cards into websites at the time I, I wrote it. And so I thought the phone ordering system would work better. But the reality is that these, these changes sort of happened over time with they were kind of, some of them were mostly good ideas, kind of mistakes. And then things changed as the environment changed around it. Some ideas that wouldn't have worked previously came into fruition. So what do you take away from that? I mean, is that just the randomness of what happens to work or is there some method behind the madness there? Yeah, there is. It's first of all, understanding what customers need, right? So whether that was the restaurants or the diners, and then iteratively trying different things, throwing different things on the wall to see what would stick, being willing to abandon the things that aren't working. And so that requires really good sunk cost thinking, you know, just because I've invested in something for the last year, doesn't mean it's a good idea. It just means I spent a year on it. And so being willing to abandon things that aren't working and take an experimental approach and an iterative experimental approach that's informed this paradox of, I think I can create something that customers don't even know that they need. And then also listening to customers and having them tell me what they need. You know, that paradox is living in that tension is important for innovation. So it's sort of that combination of iterative experimental cycle, being willing to be told I'm wrong, being willing to abandon bad ideas, and then doubling down on the things that are working. So in principle, it sounds like anyone can do that, that providing they have sufficient persistence and open-mindedness. But in practice, successful entrepreneurs do that, but large corporations struggle with that behavior. I think you've worked for large corporations before. Why is what you've described, that, that process of iterative experimentation, why, why is that quite hard to do in a big corporate? Well, it's hard to do because, you know, as, as you get past really 150 people in an organization, and then this becomes probably becomes even worse as you get to thousands of people. The idea of this is the mission statement for the company, and this is our goal for the year, and this is the department's goal, and this is the individual's goal. It takes time to develop those concepts and then get them federated out to a large organization. And so if you change your mind, if you decide that it's sunk cost thinking and you change your mind about a goal, you can't just switch like you can if you're an entrepreneur with 10 people in an office. You would then have to compose this new idea and federate that out. And if you do it too frequently, people start to feel like, what am I even putting all my time and energy towards something that it's just going to change on me? And so 
the pace at which you can abandon bad ideas and experiment with new ones is necessarily slower. The flip side of that is you have more resources to do it well. And so if you have an idea and you really want to execute on it, you might be able to get 100 people to work on it pretty quickly. But it is, it is hard to abandon ideas in a large organization because by their nature, they have more inertia. And some people have written that it may be hard, but it's, it's sort of necessary, this bifurcation of the economy we had, whereby the, you know, the entrepreneurs tried new things and the corporations that they grew into you know, stuck with those things for 10, 20, 30 years. That's, you know, that era is gone. And therefore, we actually need this skill of entrepreneurialism in large corporations. Would you agree? Or is that just close to an impossibility? I totally agree because, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, about the idea that any competitive differentiator decays over time and anyone can copy what anyone else is doing. And so, so all the things that create moats around your business that allow you to charge and make a decent margin, all of those things are decaying at every moment, which is a little bit panic inducing, right? If you, if you are the incumbent, but it's important to differentiate because otherwise you can end up just in a, an arms race of customer acquisition costs with other companies, which is really what happened to grow up after I left, right? Between DoorDash and Uber. And, and I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. And so it is absolutely essential to maintain the only competitive differentiator that doesn't decay over time is a culture of innovation. And so, yes, it's hard, but it's also necessary, right? If it was easy, everybody could do it. And so figuring out how to innovate, whether that's entrepreneurism or siloed organization, you know, Gore did this where they split into multiple organizations. There's a bunch of different structures, but really it starts with a commitment to innovation. So you did that as an individual, but you also had to build an organization that could do that. What are some of the things that you learned about building that, that culture and that sort of behaviors and habits of continuous self-renewal and innovation? I learned a few things that worked and a few things that didn't. So the first one is just stating why innovation is important, what innovation is, what our approach towards it is, and how it's important for us to keep a, a leg up from a competitive differentiation. Just saying that, making that part of a corporate culture, that's probably the first step. And so then you hire people who are okay with it. You make sure that people understand that change is sort of the only constant and that things will, will keep changing. So that's one thing. That's sort of the sale, right? That'll get you there. The anchors, the things that are holding me back, what I found was, you know, when we went through a merger with another organization, it was extraordinarily hard to innovate as you go through capital transactions and mergers and acquisitions. It, it's really hard to get people aligned when they're all just worried about, am I still going to have a job when my marketing department merges with their marketing department? And so I found that some of those elements made it really hard to keep a culture of innovation. Even when we were merging two organizations that had cultures of innovation, it was hard to keep innovation happening. And so some of the M&A transactions and things like that can be real challenging to nature of innovation. And by their nature, you're sort of assuming that the accretion of mass within an industry is its own competitive barrier. And so it decreases the feeling of the need for innovation, which is false. I actually think it's still important. It's very rare to find an industry where it's a winner take all in reality. You know, Yahoo thought they had won just by virtue of being the biggest. And then Google came along, right? And so it didn't work. Indeed. Yeah. And that, that brings us on to uh, another main theme in the book, which I read to be your criticism or lack of happiness with the direction that Grubhub took around probably running up to the IPO or after the IPO. And you seem to associate that mainly with performance pressures from, from investors are you mainly there talking about what interests you and what fits your particular set of skills and attitudes? 
Or do you also believe that these performance pressures can, can damage the business? This is almost an, an anti-capitalist statement, but it's not quite in its core. The main point of any business is not to make money. The main point is to create customer value. And by doing so, we coincidentally make dollars. And so if you let performance pressures from your ownership, whether that's private equity or public company or just an individual, what family office, whatever, if you let the performance pressures trick you into believing that the primary activity of the business is to generate cash as opposed to create customer value, then your ability to create customer value suffers over time. And then your ability to create cash suffers over time, but there's a lag. And so with public investors who can be very short-term oriented, they may be okay with that lag. But as leaders of the business, every public company, regardless of the, of the ownership pressures, has to have a point where they sort of have a stake in the ground and they say, no, this is, we're doing this thing in the long-term to benefit our customers because that's what we do. And we're not going to take the shortcut, right? And so I, it wasn't just an issue with how that particular company, you know, the particular company that I created, how they were developing. I felt like that Grubhub had a huge edge because it's 70,000 independent restaurants and no chains. And some of the other companies that we were competing with had sort of shortcut to get to our scale by just having chains like KFC and Taco Bell and so on, or whatever companies they were working with. I actually don't know if those were the specific ones, but it's hard to sell independent restaurants. It's hard to get them signed up, right? And so it's this huge competitive barrier. And so I would have argued for take the longer term approach and take care of those restaurants. That's not the way the company chose to go. But um, yeah. So you're, you're talking then about a, a sort of a universal truth then. You're not saying this, these tensions that happen to exist at Grubhub and they happen not to suit you. You're saying that the nature of making money is that if it becomes the direct goal, it will be self-defeating. You, you need to aim for some higher purpose in order to obliquely be able to make money. Is that the sense of, of your comment? Yes. I'm not dogmatic about it though. I mean, it, you have extreme examples on, on both sides, right? You have hedge funds probably that are only devoted, their only product is to, is to generate cash for their investors, but they also generate cash for themselves, right? And so if, if they only do the latter and not the former, they're not going to be able to manage their next fund, right? And so there's, there's a long-term future-oriented global perspective around this idea of create value for customers in the long-term, regardless of short-term pressures from, from the economic ownership pressures. So yeah, I definitely think it's a universal thing I'm talking about here. So having been through that, maybe you have the benefit of hindsight. So you are essentially trying to reconcile purpose and customer value and future value, but at the same time, scale and satisfy investors. And you, you, know, you were frustrated, obviously, with that tension. In retrospect, can you see better ways of managing that, that tension? So if your next business, will you manage that tension in a different way, perhaps? Yeah. So, so I think that it's very hard to differentiate in the food delivery business with with the 1099 workforce, because you have drivers who are working for all, th all three different major players, right? So how do you create an experience that's actually differentiated? So in the next business I started, I just wanted to make sure that I took that, that idea all the way to the extreme. And so I created a company called Fixer, where it's an on-demand handy person service. And the supply side of the, it looks like a marketplace in a lot of ways, but the supply side is W2 employees with full benefits, full-time work with benefits, and the idea is that in the skilled labor force where the supply is insufficient relative to the demand, that labor force actually drives a much better consumer experience. And therefore, it differentiates our product relative to the, the other players that you can see in the market. And so I'm, I'm running an experiment with this right now. It is actually a harder business to run. Like, no doubt about it. It was harder to get up to scale than my first business, Grubhub, was. 
But I think that it's also more resistant to competition from a differentiation standpoint because it was so hard. I'm also creating a business where, you know, part of the point of what we're doing is I picked a business model where not only is it going to create a profit, but the way we're going about doing it increases the skill and diversity of tradespeople in the communities we serve, which creates community impact as well. And so I picked a business model where those two things couldn't be divorced. Yeah, and indeed, I think it's another big idea in your book, which is your statement that a business cannot be divorced from the social benefit that it creates. So you've mentioned a couple of ways, you know, the stability and security of the workforce and the enrichment of the skills of the community. Are there other ways that you're trying to make this bridge between the purpose and the business work in your, in your business now, Fixer.com? Yeah, at Fixer, I mean, I think one of my investors believes very strongly that it's false to believe that impact and profit are always in conflict. If you pick the right business model and you have the right set of policies, the two things can be working in tandem. And so we're trying, one of the things we try to do is we try to specifically find the places where, where policies help both. So by way of example, this is super in the weeds, but we only change our schedules for when the workers work no more than once every quarter. So we're, we're not changing shifts often and frequently, which is really important for hourly workers, right? But it also creates a very repeatable and consistent schedule for consumers in terms of you know when we can offer our services, right? So those two things go hand in hand, right? We have people who are highly retained, don't call off very frequently, but then it's a good job for them as well. And so finding things like that, finding the win-wins are really important. And, and you only have so much attention in the business to innovate and to create product and processes and technology. And so picking the things that are win-wins and that's where we put our effort and energy has driven you know, higher growth, better margins, better retention on the supply side, better unit economics, all of those things. So it seems that we may have entered a, a new era of business, the end of the era of free capital or cheap capital. We don't know for sure, but the Fed's rate path suggests that you know, higher interest rates will be with us for some time. Presumably that changes the cost of innovation, may in some ways change the whole game. Are you, are you feeling a change in the direction of the wind in terms of the amount of innovation, the type of innovation that's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to time markets, right? If there's, there's one thing I've learned about investing at all, it's like really hard to time markets. And so it's hard to predict what's gonna be happening in the future. In the current moment, if we could make investments in things that generate additional margin in 10 years or things that we could generate additional margin in 18 months, we're gonna pick the latter right now, right? Because if we miss, cash does seem like it's a little bit harder to come by. But we haven't freaked out. Like we don't make a huge, don't make a huge reaction to that. You know, I actually made, we made that mistake in the pandemic. So we have a business where we go into people's homes, right? And so in March or April of 2020, our revenue dropped by 85%. And so we pivoted, we tried a few different things, but then the business came back. And the reality is like, maybe we shouldn't have actually taken our eye off the ball on what our core product was. And we should have just kept innovating through that. It's easy to say in hindsight, we didn't know how long the pandemic was going to be. Um, but this idea that we have muted responses to macroeconomic conditions and sort of don't play the, the sky is falling game, I think that's really important. Presumably, there's some weeding out that occurs. I mean, there must have been a whole bunch of business models, you know, Silicon Valley business models, which you could pay for at zero cost of capital, but you, you can't pay for at a higher cost of capital. Do you, do you see a sort of weeding out of good and bad ideas? Is, is it a more discriminating market? I'm not sure that the filters that investors use are well-tuned to figure out which ones work and which ones didn't. It's really only, it's time that tells. But at the same time, I can't imagine that it's not, the filter's not helpful, right? If access to capital is too easy, 
actually it's never too easy actually for startups it's really hard to raise capital for startups so i don't know that i don't know that it was actually ever really easy maybe it's just harder than it was but yeah yeah i see we see that you see a weeding out for sure is there some shift in the types of business models which are now more sensible or or better funded i'm thinking for instance there was a stage maybe two three years ago where everything was a platform business and everything was a digital ecosystem and we know that the paybacks on many digital ecosystems are quite, are quite slow. You know, are we seeing, for instance, less of that game and more of some other sort of family of business models right now? Or is it hard to say? I would say the biggest transition that I've seen is prior to six months ago when I talked to investors, I would say stuff like, hey, we're growing fast, but we have a commitment to never have our, our net margin to be lower than negative 100%. We never want to, be, to have expenses to be twice revenue or more, right? And VCs would look at us and be like, well, if you could grow faster, why wouldn't you have even higher burn rates? And now nobody's saying that. No, nobody's saying you should have a high burn rate business. And so just the appetite for better unit economics, better margin businesses that might grow at nearly 100% year over year, right? As opposed to 300% year over year. Like there's more appetite for the types of businesses that are a little bit more thoughtful about margin and are willing to sacrifice some growth for it. So that's the biggest change I've seen from a categorical perspective. It's hard for me to say. So coming back to social purpose, I guess we've got increasingly difficult problems to solve. The mother of all problems being climate change. In your experience with your, with your new business, Fixer.com, have you had any thoughts about the types of business model innovation which lend themselves to, to social purpose? So some people would say, for instance, that circular business models are very attractive and We'll be doing more of that. Do you have any insights into it, how to attack the biggest problems of society using the lever of business? I can give you a tactical observation that maybe, maybe somebody smarter than myself can make a generalization about. And that's that from a consumer acquisition perspective, I have a consumer brand, right? From a consumer acquisition perspective, it doesn't matter that much that we have a social purpose for our, for our initial customers, for the trial customer who uses us once. So adoption and brand awareness it's not helped a lot that we're a social impact business. But for repeat purchase and for habitual and for lifetime customers, it matters a tremendous amount. And so what we're seeing is that by being intentional about the impact that we're creating, you know, from an ESG perspective, you know, for us, it's, it's more social than it is environmental, but it helps with LTVs and long-term customers and repeat purchase rates and loyalty and frequency. It doesn't help with consumer acquisition costs. And so, it takes a little bit more patience to see the value. The other place where it really helps is, you know, if you combine our social impact with the fact that we're a remote only business now, we never went back to the office after the pandemic and we never will. Our ability to hire and retain the very best office workers is like, it's, we have this huge advantage relative to other startups or other companies generally. And so that's been really powerful because that, that certainly, you know, getting the best people certainly helps with from an innovation perspective. So unfortunately, our time is drawing to a close. Maybe let me finish up with a few more personal questions, if I may, Mike. So I understand that you're interested in science fiction writing. I think you, you write. And I wonder whether there's any connection you'd make between science fiction and the imagination required to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I can talk about the journey of becoming a science fiction author. So right after, right after the bike trip, I wrote my first science fiction novel, couldn't get it published. Wrote a second science fiction novel, couldn't get that published. And so I talked earlier about the importance from an innovation perspective about being willing to quit the things that aren't working. 
And so I quit science fiction and wrote a business memoir instead. And that has been a tremendous success. And so I'll say that I was well served with just these ideas around don't get overly hung up on sunk costs. You know, when you write 300,000 words, edit it down to 100,000 words, and then you can't sell the manuscript, sunk cost thinking is very painful because that's your baby and you don't want it to sit in the bottom of a shelf. But that's what it took to launch an actual writing career, but it was just in a different genre than the one I wanted. The other thing is I wrote fiction for six years. So the actual book I did write, the business book that I did write, is more entertaining than it would have been if I had just started out trying to write a business memoir. I guess in a sense, um, every business plan contains an element of fiction though, right? Because you're, you're trying to bring about some change in the world, something which is currently fictional, something that doesn't exist. Is, is there a connection between the imagination that you apply to your science fiction novels and the uh, imagining new, bringing new things to the world? Yeah. When I talked about Fixer and when I talk about where we're headed, you know, we want to reboot trade education in the United States in a gender inclusive way. And I expect to have 40,000 employees at the company in 10 to 15 years, right? And like being able to imagine a future like that is a little bit like fiction, right? To, to go from, well, we have 90 employees now and we want to get to 40,000. It, it takes an element of future casting and it's a little bit arrogant too, right? And so it does take that to innovate or, or to you know, create competitive differentiators. You have to envision a world that doesn't currently exist. And so, yeah, sure. Sci- like I highly recommend science fiction as a, as a way to exercise that muscle, especially if I write a book and I finally get it on the shelves. I really recommend it. Then. <laughs> and finally, in a sense, I read your book to be a book about strategically quitting. You know, with these decisions, you're always faced with, you know, stick or try something new or quit. Have you learned anything about when to quit, when to stay the course? Yeah, I have a very tactical piece of advice here, which is don't, don't quit things at night. Don't quit things at like 8 p.m. after <laughs> like a glass of wine when you're really tired and frustrated. Like do it in the morning, but like after you have your coffee and not on one of those days where like you have to get your kids to school and you're late. Quit things in the clear, quit clear, calmly. rested you're not agitated. Like that's the time to make a decision about are my efforts aligned with where I want my life to be going? It's not when you're tired and wiped out and just like want, want to be done for the day. And so, yeah, I think that I do talk about that, that it takes a lot of really hard work and tenacity to make ideas come to reality. And so pairing that with the ability to quit the things that aren't working, those two things are in deep conflict. They're very, there's a lot of tension there. I explore that a lot in the book about the times when I stick to it and the times when I decide that's enough and I move on. Well, great. It's been fascinating. Thanks so much for joining me, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So I've been speaking to Mike Evans, who is the author of the new book, Hangry, A Startup's Journey, out on November the 1st from Legacy Lit, also available in audible form. I think it's a really fascinating book for our large corporate audience, actually. You've got entrepreneurialism and what it looks like in the raw, and you've got this the art of when to stick and when to quit and the now the very sort of hot debate around marrying social purpose with, with profit. So I, I found it to be a very good read and I'd highly recommend it. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as usual, we'll welcome your feedback on any aspect of the podcast. So please reach out to the Henderson Institute. 